Welcome to 14th and G. I'm so pleased to be joined today by Alyssa Richardson, Deputy Chief of Staff to Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. Alyssa's run point on Senator Scott's Justice Act, aimed at reforming American law enforcement. And also joining us is my colleague at the firm and my good friend, Paul Thornell. Paul has held leadership positions in the Senate for former Vice President Al Gore, and he served as an informal advisor to House and Senate Democratic leaders on efforts to increase staff diversity in Congress. And not for nothing, he's also a whiz at financial services policy. Alyssa, Paul, welcome to 14th and G. Thanks so much. Thanks. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Dean. You know, we ask an enormous amount of our police officers in this country. Uh, we ask them for protection. We ask them for service. We ask them to be part soldier and part social worker. Uh, it's a hard job and it's often a dangerous job. And I think Americans broadly value and honor the service and sacrifice of police officers. But what the killing of George Floyd in the custody of the Minneapolis police brought home to many of us uh, is the very different experiences that white Americans and black Americans have with law enforcement. And Alyssa, Senator Scott spoke really eloquently about his own experience in that regard. And so when it comes to reforming law enforcement in the United States, uh, we all recognize Senator Scott's passion and commitment and those on the Democratic side as well. I don't think anyone questions that. But what was it that prompted your boss to feel like he had to lead on this effort? Thanks for that question, Dean. You know, for Senator Scott, this isn't a sudden interest for him, right? This doesn't earn him a ton of political capital. For Senator Scott, this is very real. Uh, I'll start where, where he started. Uh, Senator Scott is from Charleston, South Carolina, which means he grew up just a few miles away from where Walter Scott was shot and killed in 2015 by North Charleston former police officer Michael Slager. Uh, coincidentally, Dean, that was my first uh, civil rights case as a federal prosecutor. Um, and, and since it was my first case, I, I watched the more experienced attorneys in the room. But I learned so much from that case, and I, I also met with the family. Senator Scott also talks about meeting with that family. You know, he in his book, Opportunity Knocks, he, he describes that meeting in, in great detail, um, meeting with the family in the days before the funeral. And in talking with Walter Scott's family, Senator Scott, now, again, this is back in 2015, Senator Scott promised to do whatever he could to make sure this didn't happen again. And if you'll recall, a few days later, back in D.C., he gave three speeches on the Senate floor, and he, he, he talked about the pain of racism. He talked about being stopped multiple times. But importantly, he also talked about the bravery of law enforcement. Senator Scott, like myself, uh, recognizes it's a false dichotomy, right? Pro-police or anti-racism. You know, I had a professor in law school who, who always yelled, resist the binary, resist the binary. She's right. Uh, I choose both. Uh, I choose both being pro-police, but also being anti-racism. Senator Scott chooses both. And so in 2015, again, we're talking five years ago, Senator Scott introduced the Walter Scott Notification Act, which would require law enforcement agencies to notify where there is an officer-involved shooting resulting in death or serious bodily injury. So that's 2015. Fast forward to 2020, Senator Scott went to Leader Mitch McConnell and said, 
put me in charge. I, I've lived it. I've lived this experience since he's a man. I get to tell his age. I've lived this experience for 54 years as a black man. I, but I've been working in this space. I've done roundtables. I've been out front on criminal justice reform. R- remember the landmark legislation in 2018 uh, under President Trump's administration, uh, under leaders like Senator Tim Scott, released hundreds of folks who'd overserved for various uh, crack cocaine offenses. And, and I should know, I was a prosecutor at the time, and so it, it generated a great deal of work with us getting requests based on this legislation um, for, for former inmates to be released. So the answer is this is just very real for Senator Scott, not because he's the black dude in the room, but because he's done the work. And so Senator Scott has introduced the Justice Act uh, in the Senate to address the problems you've walked through. Can you talk through the uh, the main points of the legislation? Yes, happy to walk through that legislation. I would break it into three parts. First, being transparency. Second, being training. And third, being a, a section of bipartisan wins. Uh, so starting with that first section, transparency. Here's a question that you or I and, and no one in the audience can really answer. How many uses of force are happening each year? I don't know the answer to that question. In fact, the Washington Post is really the best source of that information, and they get their information from newspaper clippings, social media, combing through police reports. That's ridiculous, uh, but they are the best source. Uh, Currently, only about 40 percent of localities actually report uses of force to the FBI. So the Walter Scott notification, George Floyd notification portion of Senator Scott's legislation requires that reporting uh, for all jurisdictions receiving federal dollars. Um, And that would be a report on the uses of force for death or serious bodily injury happen. Another part under this transparency umbrella is the Breonna Taylor Notification Act, which requires reporting on the use of no-knock warrants. Another piece here is body cameras, right? There's there's studies that show that the use of body worn cameras have a chilling effect on two things. First, on the use of force. Use of force goes down when folks are wearing body cams. And second, frivolous citizen complaints. They also go down when folks are wearing body cams. What that tells us is that no more two sides to every story. There's no more, you know, use of force plus falsified police reports. No more citizens who feel like they're being silenced, right? The body cam is able to tell a more fulsome picture of that story. Uh, Senator Scott's legislation provides $100 million in for, for body cameras. And additionally, and this is a portion that, that, that isn't seen in the House bill, uh, Senator Scott's legislation also provides uh, penalties where officers are intentionally failing to use their body camera or conveniently turning it off at just the the critical moment. Uh, Another piece here that's also not reflected in the House bill is that our legislation creates a new federal crime for false reporting in use of force uh, cases. There are any lawyers out there or criminal lawyers out there, you know that there are existing statutes for false reporting, but you've got to show you were warned beforehand about lying or or that you knew your report would go to a federal agency. Uh, We we cut all through that because we know that false reporting where there's been a, a, a use of force, excessive use of force, inherently has constitutional law claims and, and, and should require stiffer penalties. And what about bad officers, right, who falsified reports or who have been disciplined for excessive use of force? What we can't have is those officers continuing to hop from city to city, from department to department. Each state and department 
should and must be under this legislation maintaining a system for keeping track of those disciplinary reports. Um, and those reports will follow the officer wherever he tries to apply elsewhere. So that's all in that first bucket of transparency. The second bucket of Senator Scott's legislation is training. How are the officers being trained? Are they prepared for the situations they're encountering? The, the bill provides for de-escalation training, uh, development and certification of those trainings on how to how to turn the pressure down, how to de-escalate. The bill provides for responding to mental health, training around that. And when we say mental health, we're talking about anybody that could be experiencing a mental health crisis for whatever reason, whether it be a mental illness, influence of alcohol, um, uh, an addiction. Uh, that's an, that mental health piece is, is is critical here, and that's something that's not reflected in the House bill. Um, there's also uh, training on a duty to intervene, which means what do you do when you think your fellow officers have crossed the line? What what's your duty there? And finally, chokeholds. There's been a lot of talk about chokeholds. Nobody can ban chokeholds on the state and local level, or at least from a federal perspective, uh, constitutionally. Right. We, we can't tell states and local police departments what to do. We can incentivize it, however. Our bill uh, cuts all DOJ funding for states and localities that fail to put a no chokehold policy in place. And of course, uh, similar to the House bill, we also ban chokeholds outright for federal officers. Um, but federal officers, uh, IRS, FBI, right, that, that represents a, a smaller portion of, of the larger, about 800,000 law enforcement officers across the nation. So those are the first two sections, the training and the transparency pieces. Uh, the last part uh, are the bipartisan measures that had already gained support across the aisle. The Anti-Lynching Act. You you probably have seen some back and forth on this. The Senate passed it twice. The House wanted to get credit for renaming it. Uh, you know, we don't care. We just want it done. So we added it to the bill. There was a National Criminal Justice Commission to take a, a comprehensive look at the criminal justice system that already had bipartisan support. Commission on the Social Status of Black Men and Boys, again, already had bipartisan port, support established to take a holistic view at uh, conditions affecting um, black folks, including education, health care, financial status. So those are those three pieces, the transparency training and, and bipartisan. But again, the entire bill had tremendous overlap with the House across the across the legislation. And I want to get to those points of commonality between both efforts. Uh, Paul, I'm wondering, the, the House passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Senators Booker and Harris uh, sponsored the Justice and Policing Act in the Senate. Uh, what are the main points on the Democratic bills? Yeah, well, um, thanks for that, Dean. And um, Alyssa's overview was a good one. And I think closing out on the fact that there is a lot of commonality. I mean, I think anybody who looks at both sets of both bills sees a comprehensive approach here. Or, you know, we're not just talking about, let's say, anti-lynching. You're not just talking about training. You're not just talking about one sort of feature of this, because this is really a complex blend of uh, sort of the federal state dynamic here, the types of ways that based on some of the killings we've seen, what are appropriate steps to take to address that. The mix of funding limits and the mix of incentives, and they're, they're, they're just fundamentally different ways to tackle this problem. And you see a lot of commonality there, but I think there's no doubt that both can be described uh, as, as comprehensive, which is important, and, and bipartisan. I, I think 
when you look at the, you know, I sort of count seven just general areas, um, Alyssa, uh, in, included some of the bipartisan points that I might leave out here. But generally speaking, what we've seen in this discussion about the ways that the, 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 the most significant steps on reform touch on the following issues, uh, chokeholds and use of force, let's say, no-knock warrants, anti-lynching, uh, data collection um, by DOJ, uh, training resources, body cameras, and then the issue of qualified immunity. Now, it seems to me, I think anybody can credibly say that there are Democrats and Republicans somewhere who voice some support for one of those, all of those uh, measures. They're not all in uh, Senator Scott's bill, but generally some version of them, with the exception of qualified immunity, is in there. And you've seen Senate Republicans, some of them urge reform of that. So when you look at what the House bill put together, touching on those areas, you, you see a difference in approach. But I think fundamentally what, what it tells me is that this is a building on a lot of the, the civil rights reforms and I think was appropriately viewed by most sort of in the racial social justice bucket. But the, frankly, the tradition of civil rights laws is that, A, it takes a while to get something done. B, sometimes you have to settle for half a loaf. And so especially as you look at, um, as, as Alyssa mentioned, the, the First Steps Act that passed, uh, I guess it was the end of 18 and got enacted, uh, that was a, a law that took some important steps related to criminal justice. And I think you had voices on both sides saying there were parts of it that were flawed. And a lot of times that might tell you, you you've actually got a good product there if uh, people on different sides are critical of it, but you're able to get a critical mass to get it over the goal line. And I think fundamentally that's probably the scenario we're going to find ourselves in here. I think what I what I take at least from the House consideration, um, it, it was it was by and large a partisan vote. But at least what I know of the leaders who are driving that work principally on the House side, whether it is Congressman Karen Bass, chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, whose uh, whose whose bill it was. She's also, of course, on the Judiciary Committee or Hakeem Jeffries, who had um, uh, significant uh, provisions in there related to excessive use of force and also was the principal driver of First Steps Act in the House. And then, of course, Majority Whip Jim Clyburn. These are all individuals who I think are deal makers. It does not mean they are unprincipled. It doesn't mean they care less about getting something done. It just means they're not going to rule out the possibility of negotiating. And so that is, I think, an important indicator that there is a scenario where maybe it's a month from now, maybe at some point in September, or maybe it's early next year, whatever that point is. It tells me that there are people passionate about this on both sides who are willing to make, make a deal. And I think I don't, for one question, I don't think anybody uh, who's heard Senator Scott speak about this can question his passion, uh, his commitment, and his knowledge on this and awareness. I think the, the real question is, are there going to be enough Democrats and Republicans with latitude from leadership on both sides in both chambers to cut a deal? Because we know that the House passed bill is not going to be enacted into law. And at least at this point, Senator Scott's bill is, is by itself is not going to be enacted into law. But, you know, there's at least 
some commonality in the scope. I, I, again, comprehensive. Uh, the bipartisan support for a range of changes. And, and, and also, frankly, as I noted, the fact that a lot of the key decision makers in the mix here uh, are deal makers and willing to try to figure out a way to get something done. Well, Alyssa, uh, Senator Scott expressed some optimism last week. He uh, He's had some discussions, I think, with, with Democrats on the House side. Uh, the Justice Act did fail in the Senate on a party line vote on cloture on the motion to proceed. The majority leaders preserved his rights on the motion to reconsider that vote. And obviously, the House has passed what they've passed. And if there's any path forward here on police reform, it's going to necessitate bipartisan compromise in the Senate. Uh, is there a viable path in, in the months ahead to, to get a bill to the president's desk? And, and what does that look like? I, I really hope so. And um, unfortunately, this is where the politics we've seen um, have come into play. Right. It, it's July now. Right. In Four months, uh, a third of the Senate, right, and all of the House members will be facing uh, elections in November. So, first, let me let me start this way. Let me tell you what happened in May and June, right? George Floyd was killed at the end of May, um, May 25th, I believe. And, and from the moment that video surfaced and the protests began, I believe on both sides of the, sides of the aisle, we knew there we had a moment. We we had this this possibility, and so conversations began across the aisle about what could and, and should justice reform look like. And, and Senator Scott stepped up and asked to lead the effort for the Republicans. Um, and we continued those conversations across the aisle um, as best we could. And, and Senator Scott, he, he put it quite eloquently in, in the, the moments after the vote failed he said that he, he realized it wasn't necessarily the what of what was in the bill, right? As as Paul and I have just described, there's, there's tremendous overlap. It wasn't the what of what's in the bill. It was the who. What we've realized and what we've seen with politics is that there are folks who are up for reelection or eyeing a role in what they hope to be a Biden administration who wanted to get a, a quote unquote win here. And, and turns out, you can't let Senator Tim Scott or the Republicans be at the table if, if you want to be able to continue campaigning and, and talking about this issue all the way up into November. So Senator Scott, he's certainly optimistic. He's hopeful that there will be some movement. Uh, he's absolutely found some folks, and, and Paul has mentioned a few of them, including um, Representative Bass, who are less worried about campaigning and more concerned about the content of the legislation. Um, and some of those folks are giving our legislation a hard look. So I'm optimistic as well. I don't know what will happen in November, but I do know that there are good faith actors who want this legislation to happen now. Um, and I think to more directly answer your question, what you're going to have to see is a, a process where both sides are getting to have some say. Um, you know, Senator Scott talks about the nitty gritty of the negotiations uh, up, up until that vote. And we were under the uh, impression that the, the Democrats had about five issues with the Justice Act as, as drafted by Senator Scott. Um, Senator Scott entered negotiations with the Senate Democrats and, and said, hey, we'll give you five amendments. And at that point, they said, well, actually, is a lot more than five. We've, we've got 20 issues with, with the bill. And Senator Scott said, we'll give you 20 amendments. Uh, Dean, somehow that still was not good enough. Um, again, we, we realized it wasn't what what was in there or what, what was what the content was. And so, that, of course, the House passed their version. 
offered no amendments to Republicans, no chance to have a say in the process. And so to get something happening, hopefully in the next few weeks, at some point, it's going to take more conversations with those good faith actors who aren't I in November, but who know that this is too important to wait and want something to happen now. Well, yeah, I mean, to Lisa's point, there's no doubt that that whether it's, you know, in the Senate, in the House, there, you know, we're, we're always in a political season. And, you know, I think there's there's certainly some, as Alyssa noted, some some broader national aspirations. But, you know, there are also some home state interests that Breonna Taylor was killed after uh, Louisville police used a no-knock warrant. Certainly that compelled Senator Rand Paul to voice his support for changing that. And, and you see different instances where certainly Senator Cornyn, obviously being on the Judiciary Committee, but but the fact that Houston is where George Floyd was, it, it compelled you know Senator Cornyn, obviously, to have a, a voice in it and to want to. And I, I don't in any way suggest those are not authentic instances where you have people principled, but but driven by, in some cases, home state interests. And, and obviously, there are interests on, on the Democratic side, you know, uh, reflective of voices off Capitol Hill, you know. And I think it was notable that um, many of the organizations who've been urging changes in terms of policing for years, and, and frankly, the broad swath of civil rights organizations were were advocating for the House version. And uh, I'm not going to suggest that makes it so <laughs> or should determine what the end product is. But I think it does bear mentioning that those advocacy groups, uh, many of them uh, uh, household names that we all, but but of course, also many of the, the families of many of the unarmed black people who were killed uh, were speaking up at different points. Um, so I think it's it's certainly, uh, you know, politics in play on the Hill, but I think important to recognize that there were voices off the Hill who wanted to be heard on this and who were, you know, advocating for a strong set of packages, set of reforms in the final package as possible. Alyssa, Paul and I spend our days advising our clients on public policy I think police reform legislation was a natural first step for Congress to take, and the debate has drawn in calls for action from business leaders as well. Many folks in the corporate sector, they're not experts on criminal justice uh, and aren't often asked to voice on these issues, but they did want to voice support for change and were encouraged to do so. I wonder if you have any advice for corporate leaders want to advocate in this space but aren't sure how. Absolutely. You know, Dean, I believe in uh, public-private partnerships. You know, it is certainly sexier to yell and and, um, push for the federal government to fix all things, and and we are trying. But for corporate leaders with the resources and the platform, they can really get in at the ground floor. You know, I just had a roundtable discussion uh, yesterday uh, via Zoom, right? We are in the virtual world now uh, with several criminal justice advocates in South Carolina. That's that's where I'm from. That's where the senator's from. Uh, I was talking with ser- mostly service providers. And what they said they needed were jobs for those being released from, from prison, right? Those with that convicted felony on, the, on their record. Transitional housing for those same folks. People willing to mentor youth on the front end and provide training on, on how to build wealth and how to set up their lives for success. So I 
appreciate so very much that corporations are paying attention. And it's all very nice that, um, you know, you've seen some corporations gave their staff the day off for Juneteenth um, or are, you know, playing the National Negro Anthem or sending somber emails with, you know, hashtag Black Lives Matter. But, you know, gee, what what if they put those resources into apprenticeship programs? What if they connected with talented kids to create a school to Fortune 500 pipeline? Or, or what if they put their resources into opportunity zones and built more jobs? Uh, if this is about a community that feels disenfranchised, show us the money, show us the resources, show us the opportunities. That's great. And I've really appreciated this discussion, Alyssa and Paul. Thank you so much for joining me on 14th and G today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Appreciate the talk. Thanks. Thanks so much for having us, Dean.